Life is busy, especially if you've got a very important podcast to host. If you want fewer trips to the grocery store and a freezer full of meat, get ButcherBox. They've got incredible deals on high-quality meat and seafood, and it's delivered right to your door. You can customise your ButcherBox plan, and they'll throw in recipes, tips, guides, and hacks. ButcherBox meat is humanely raised. There are no antibiotics or added hormones, so you can choose from grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood. And shipping is 100% free. Sign up at butcherbox.com underworld and use the code underworld to get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. That's butcherbox.com underworld and the code underworld to choose your free-for-a-year offer. Plus, get $20 off your first order. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed. So you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey guys, and welcome to a bonus Underworld podcast episode. I'm Sean Williams in Wellington. You know that already because you're the best people on earth and you subscribe to the show, of course. And I'm joined today by reporter Trevor Aronson, a contributing writer at The Intercept and creator of podcast Alphabet Boys, which is about stings and the so-called alphabet agencies of the US. That's your CIA, your FBI, DEA, ATF and so on. And Trevor's second season, and we'll get to the first one later on, it's all about an arms deal, the FARC, government infighting, the mob in Vegas and a Romanian fixer named Flavio Georgescu. I mean, that sounds just like right in our wheelhouse, doesn't it? So first of all, welcome to the show, Trevor. This story is pretty crazy. Uh, you follow a lot of stuff about sort of government overreach, government um, agencies, the Alphabet Boys, of course. Uh, where did you come across Flavio and what kind of piqued your interest about this particular guy? I imagine you speak to many, many sources of a, a kind of similar ilk, I guess, with, with, uh, with stories about the government in various ways. Yeah, so I remember very vaguely hearing about Flavio's arrest, you know, in, in large part because I follow terrorism prosecutions and have alerts set up for Justice Department, National Security Division press releases. And I, I think my first introduction of Flavio's case uh, was seeing a press release about the arrest, which at the time, based solely on that, seemed very serious, right? The idea that this Romanian guy partnered with another Romanian, as well as this former Italian politician we're brokering this $14 million arms deal for the FARC, the Colombian rebel group that at the time uh, was a U.S. designated terrorist organization. And I, I, you know, I just kind of made a mental note at, at that, and I didn't really pursue it in any substantial way. And as it happens, on the eve of Flavio's trial, um, his, his wife at the time, Andra, had reached out to me because she had seen that in the past I'd written about cases involving government entrapment, and they felt that I would be a good person to to talk to. And so at, at that point is when I really started diving into Flavio's case, because 
what I didn't know until his wife, Andra, had, had told me was that as the trial was coming up, the defense was going to be that he wasn't brokering this arms deal as a criminal. In fact, he was cooperating with the Central Intelligence Agency and he was providing intelligence to them. And then the government is basically hanging him out to dry, which, of course, is a very provocative claim and, you know, started my interest uh, interest in the case. And so that would have been roughly 2017 that that was 2016, 2017 that that was happening. How does how does a journalist like yourself go about investigating something as kind of, you know, weird and, and, and I guess in many ways a sort of closed box with the agencies that involves as well? Yeah, so. You know, a lot of the cases that are that are prosecuted in, in federal courts in the U.S., the vast majority of defendants plead guilty. And and what that prevents is the disclosure of a lot of the, what the what's called discovery material, the evidence in the case. And so in, in many ways, we are not always given a glimpse into allegedly egregious behavior by government agents like the FBI or the DEA, because so much of the evidence of that behavior never comes to light because of the, the plea that happens. Um, the, the defendants often will plead guilty before they're even given access to the full discovery, the full set of evidence. And in some ways, you can't necessarily blame them because, you know, if you're facing terrorism related charges, you could face 20, 30 life in, in prison. If you're convicted at trial, a plea deal, they'll sometimes offer eight to 12. And so there is an incentive for these defendants to, to plead guilty. And, and that is often what happens. So a lot of my work in looking at entrapment schemes run by the, the FBI and the DEA and others is it really depends on the ability to access the evidence in the case, the undercover recordings um, that, that were made as part of the investigation. And because Flavio went to trial, so much of the evidence that the DEA had produced was then put into the public record as a result of that trial. And I think I, I should note and say that, you know, as I mentioned, Flavio, Flavio's defense and Flavio's story to this day is that he was working with the Central Intelligence Agency to bring information about this supposed arms deal, effectively, you know, reporting to the CIA, the DEA's own undercover agent in this sting operation that was essentially <laughs> targeting Flavio. I mean, it's, it's kind of this, uh, this, this Robin wheel of, of allegations, right? Uh, but what, what, what's substantial about Flavio's case, and the reason I have covered it for as long as I did, and I think were it not for this, I probably would have brushed the case aside, is that in, as part of the evidence in his prosecution, the CIA turned over recordings of Flavio's calls. And, you know, to me, this is significant in, in two ways. One is that Flavio's claim that he was working for the CIA would have otherwise been entirely, um, it, it would have been impossible to corroborate in any way, right? You can't call up the CIA and say, hey, was Flavio one of your sources? They'll, they'll, of course, say no comment. And then the second was that even though the, the CIA did not make any claims that Flavio was working for the agency, the fact that the CIA turned over the recordings showing that he had made these calls and talked to agents and basically reported the very crime that he would later be charged with before having committed it, you know, to me, that was significant. You know, what Flavio would allege is that that's proof that, the, that he was working for the CIA. I don't know if I'm willing to go that far, but I think it's at least proof that the CIA is, basic, is, is, is saying like, hey, there might be something to the claims, at least that Flavio thought he was working for the mm -hmm. agency because he makes these calls. And, you know, I, and I think that's what's always really intrigued me about the story is that these calls exist and were turned over because otherwise I, I wouldn't have pursued it. But I think what's also really interesting, and, and this is in episode two of the show, is that the calls, there's a, there's a level of ambiguity to the calls about whether Flavio really 
was reporting the information to the CIA and whether the F- whether the CIA was enlisting Flavio as uh, an informant or or whether none of that really happened. And you know the calls are so ambiguous that it leaves open this question of you know was Flavio working for the CIA as he alleged or as, as the government alleged was this some elaborate cover for you know to give him some an insurance policy in case he was arrested which ultimately he was. And so I think what we, we try to present to the listener in this show, in this, in this season, is all of the evidence that we know and all of the circumstances around these calls and this sting and, and try to let the listener, you know, come to the conclusion on their own, whether they believe Flavio, you know, really was working for the CIA or maybe thought he was working for the CIA or if it was, in fact, as the government alleged, you know, a, a part of a cover to, you know, be able to, to use in case he was uh, arrested and charged as he was. So, so help us unpick this, this deal that's at the center of everything. Then what was actually going on? Where did it happen? And who are the parties involved? Yeah. So there, there was actually two, two Georgescu's involved. Um, Georgescu is actually the most common surname in Romania. It's like Smith in the United States. And uh, Flavio had grown up in Romania under Nicolae Ceausescu, moved to the United States and settled in Las Vegas. And he had this, job of basically being an all-around fixer for wealthy people, mainly Eastern Europeans. And through that, he meets a man named Andy Georgescu, and they become fast friends. Andy ran this business where he shipped automobiles and other um, items out of the port of Los Angeles. And Flavio's clients would buy expensive cars in Las Vegas, and he would then deliver those cars to Andy Georgescu to ship them to Vegas. This went on for a decade in the early 2000s. And, and one day in 2012, Andy Georgescu calls Flavio and says, you know, I know this guy who is um, interested in brokering an arms deal for the FARC, uh, the FARC being the rebel group in, in Colombia. And he asks Flavio because Flavio tends to be a connected guy. If he knows how anyone who could make that happen and that if he does know anyone who could make that happen, they could make a lot of money on a commission as a middleman for an arms transaction. And Flavio says, maybe he could and hangs up the phone with this, this friend, Andy, and that's when he calls immediately the CIA, you know, quite literally, you know, the, the CIA's 1-800 number, if you will, is no longer listed on the website. But back in 2012, it was. And as ridiculous as it sounds, Flavio goes to CIA.gov, finds the number and gets an agent on the phone. And it's basically like, hey, this guy, Andy, I know, introduced me to this Colombian. The Colombian wants me to help him broker arms for the FARC. Do you guys want to know more information about this? And, you know, what, what, what increases the level of intrigue in this whole thing is that when Flavio calls the CIA, one of the things he mentions is that you know, he basically says, I'm a known source. I've worked with you guys in the past. And what he meant is that in the early 2000s, when he was living in Las Vegas, Flavio was an informant for the FBI and had provided information about Eastern European uh, organized crime. And then even after he moved back to Europe, he was still providing information to the FBI. And this is all documented. And so it, you know, that fact kind of lends some credibility to the claim that Flavio may have been at least thought he was working for the CIA when he, when he makes that call. And so, but at the same time, he makes this call in 2012 reports this arms deal, but nothing really happens until 2014, two years later, when Flavio is then introduced to Juan, the Colombian in person and, you know, what's interesting and what kind of cuts against Flavio's story, if you will, is that he then meets with Juan 
but never calls the CIA back. Never says, hey, I talked to you guys two years ago. I'm meeting with this guy now. What should I do? Um, instead, he meets with Juan, and then they carry forward in discussions about how they would put together this arms deal. And ultimately, Flavio you know, spends months recruiting other people to help him. He, he meets a, a Romanian government minister named uh, Christian Ventilla, whose job was to liaise between the, the, the government of Romania and, and the NATO alliance. And Christian is very familiar with weapons and arms manufacturers. And he brings on Christian to help him find the factory to sell the weapons. And then, you know, in order to ship weapons internationally, um, you need a regulatory document called an end user certificate, which basically is, basically is like a legal document that says these weapons will be shipped to this country. And it, 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 it guarantees that the weapons aren't being shipped to terrorists or, you know, governments like Syria or Iran or, or the Colombian FARC um, that are prohibited from receiving these under international sanctions or regulations. And so with the help of a former Italian parliament member named Massimo Romagnoli, they obtain an end user certificate that claims the weapons are uh, bound for Ethiopia, even though the intention is to ship them to Colombia. And so over the course of months, never getting any money for his efforts, Flavio knits together the entire you know, network to um, deliver these weapons to the Colombian FARC. So then the question becomes... Did Flavio deliver this network, this whole arms deal, arrange this, make this arrangement in order to make a lot of money? Because potentially he could have. Or was he doing it in order to kind of figure out who the players were and how the FARC would get these weapons in order to deliver it to the CIA? And when I'd asked Flavio, you know, why he didn't call the CIA back, you know, two years after the initial call, you know, his, his response is, well, I was doing the work to figure out who these people were. So I could then go and provide that information to the CIA. And I, I wasn't finished yet by the time I was arrested by, by the DEA. And so, you know, the, the conclusion, which is actually kind of where we start the show, we start the show at kind of the, the penultimate moment, is, is, is when Flavio puts together this arms deal. He's got an end user certificate. He's got an arms manufacturer in Bulgaria willing to ship the weapons. And then he meets Juan the Colombian in uh, Montenegro provides him with the contract, needs a signature, Juan would have to wire the money. But before any of that happens, the DEA rushes in and arrests Flavio and his partner, Christian Ventilla. And at that point, Flavio motions to the, the arresting agent, asks to speak to him privately in the bathroom, in this hotel room, and says, I work for the CIA. And of course, the DEA guy is like, yeah, right, man, whatever, you don't work for the CIA, and, and arrests him. And that really kind of you know, triggers the trial, and the, the questions about uh, whether, in fact, Flavia was really working for the CIA. It's, it's kind of the old um, Victor Boot entrapment as well, right? This is exactly the same uh, method they, they got him with. It's like a FARC leader. Oh, by the way, just so you know, uh, we're definitely going to shoot down American helicopters with these RPGs just to kind of ram it home. Um, yeah, so, no, it, it, you're exactly right. I mean, we we actually mentioned Victor Boot's case in the in the last episode when we talk about narco terrorism stings in general, and that's what this is. So, you know, the the backstory, of course, is you know if you, if you play the, if you wind the clock all the way back, you know, and you go back to the drug war in the 1980s, you know, one of the things that was happening was that the FBI was kind of initially cut out of the drug war, and so in 19, I believe 1986, the FBI went to the Reagan administration. And, and Congress and asked for concurrent jurisdiction over drugs. 
And and that was a funding gambit, right? Like the FBI saw bun- lots of money going to the drug war. And so then the DEA and the FBI get concurrent jurisdiction. And if you fast forward then to the post 9-11 era, the opposite was happening. Terrorism was the large funding game and the DEA was largely cut out of it. And so in 2006, the DEA did what the FBI did in the 1980s. They went to Congress and they said, hey, look, we think there's this real issue of narco-terrorism, and we need lots of funding to, to find these narco-terrorists. And, you know, narco-terrorism, the definition of it is basically terrorist organizations or, or terrorists individually who are funding their activities through the drug trade. And there's a real question in the, in the academic research about whether this is really a thing, right? Like, you can point to limited examples, the, the Taliban's use of the poppy trade to fund some mm. of its activities, but there's no real substantial evidence to suggest organizations like al-Qaeda or ISIS fund their activities and their violence through through the drug trade. Uh, but one exception, of course, is the FARC, the Colombian rebel group, because of its location in rural areas of Colombia, does fund its activities in part through cocaine cultivation and production. And what the DEA started doing once they got funding for narco-terrorism is they would take um, undercover agents or more, more commonly undercover informants and have them pose as, as FARC officials. And they would travel the world, mostly in Europe, you know, looking for people who, who would then sell them weapons. And they would make clear, like, this money comes from drug proceeds and the weapons you're going to sell to us are going to be used to kill Americans and shoot down American helicopters. You know, and that was, that's what they did in Flavio's case. But as you noted, they did the exact same thing to Victor Boot. They had initially approached one of Victor Boot's um, colleagues and then set up a very similar sting where they ultimately arrested Victor Boot in Thailand. And then another man, um, Manzral Kassar, this, this arms dealer who's known mm. as the Prince of Marbella for this enormous mansion he owned in southern Spain, was caught in a similar sting. And I think you can argue credibly that Victor Boot and Manzar Al-Kassar were legitimate arms dealers, right? Where there's a gray area is that both of these guys at various times have, you know, traded in illegal arms that were actually in the U.S. interest through proxy wars and others. So it's a very complicated picture. But these were, in fact, um, arms dealers. But the, the other case, but, but aside from those cases, when you look at DEA narco-terrorism stings, it's more commonly... The, the 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 question is more commonly whether the person targeted in the sting like Flavio really is a legitimate arms dealer um it, you know as just another example of this there was a case where the DEA just like in Flavio's case just like in Victor Boots sent undercover informants claiming to be Colombian FARC rebels to Africa and they entrapped three Malian men um in this supposed scheme to fund uh both the, the FARC and Al-Qaeda by moving weapons through parts of Africa. And they'd offered these young, these three young Malian men a lot of money to do this, ultimately arrested them, brought them back to the United States and, and prosecuted them under um, terrorism charges. And the ambassador to the United States from Mali, you know, made public statements to the Justice Department that, that basically said, hey, look, we are a very, very poor country. And if you're going to send undercover agents in, you know, with you know, offering thousands and thousands of dollars to commit crimes, you're going to find a lot of criminals. And, and, you know, and that's, and that's true. I think in, in some of these narco-terrorism sting cases, this idea that would this crime have been committed were it not for the, the, the um, DEA kind of making everything possible through this, right? Mm-hmm. There's not a, 
a whole lot of evidence that I've seen that real FARC officials are traveling around the world buying weapons using cocaine proceeds. But the DEA, as a result of this expanded mandate in the post-9-11 era, really turned it into this cottage industry and arrested more than two dozen people, you know, worldwide. I mean, and, and keep in mind, all of these, all of these, um, all of these crimes happen outside the United States, right? So it also raises these questions of, you know, the United States being kind of the world prosecutor and world police, because ultimately, as in Flavio's case, as in Victor Booth's case, all of the crime happens outside the United States. No, no American is ever, you know, harmed in the crime. And yet the crime is then prosecuted always in New York City, um, you know, even though there is no connection to the United States or New York City what's, whatsoever. Yeah, it's it it's really um, crazy how all those agencies have worked together and, and, and kind of like at different times pounced on these sort of chimeras of various organized crime groups, the terror link-ups. Um, we've covered it sometimes on the pod as well. Um, when when Flavio co- kind of takes this guy from the from the sting and kind of goes, "P.S. I'm I'm working for you guys," um, it, it really tumbles into this fascinating history about him being. I mean, he's a grafter, essentially, right? He's this kind of fixer bringing cars over um, into Vegas. And then he gets involved with the FBI. Um, This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. And involved with this really fascinating kind of nexus of organized criminal groups in Vegas that is continuing despite the, the kind of oldie-worldie mafias leaving town. Um, tell us a bit more about those sort of competing or sort of cooperating groups and how Flavio kind of weighed into the whole group. Yeah, so we, we, tell, the, we tell his history in Las Vegas through his FBI handler, a man named Mark Pinto. And, and Mark Pinto, in the early 2000s, his job for the FBI was to investigate the growing um, organized crime threat, spe- specifically among Eastern European groups. And so, you know, obviously the quick history of, the, of, of Las Vegas is that this was a city largely founded by La Cosa Nostra, the Italian mafia, and, and for, for years would funnel money to, you know, mob operations in Chicago and Kansas City and New York and, and elsewhere. But starting in the 90s, the, the influence of the Italian mafia in Las Vegas began to wane. And there was really this increase in Eastern European organized crimes, crime groups in, in Las Vegas, you know, Romanians, um, Armenians, Russians. Um, and, and one of the things that the Eastern European crime groups uh, adopted from, from the Italian crime groups that had preceded them was this idea that, that Las Vegas was what's called an open city. So in, in cities like Los Angeles or New York, the Armenians wouldn't work with the Romanians. They were rivals. But in, because Las Vegas was an open city to the Eastern European groups, just like it was to the Italian groups before them, um, it allowed these groups to work together. 
And so what Mark Pinto, the FBI agent, was seeing in Las Vegas was this burgeoning partnership between the Armenians and the Romanians. And the, he didn't quite know what was happening. All he knew is that they were involved in some sort of credit card fraud scheme. And um, Mark had you know, tried to kind of crack his way into the group and really struggled. And then one day in 2001, Flavia Georgescu walks into the FBI's office in Las Vegas and just offers to help. And what Flavio says is that, you know, he had worked really hard to come to the United States and he really loved the United States and he really dislikes the way that, that corruption happened in his home country in Romania. And he was disgusted to see Romanians come to the United States and then abuse the system and commit these crimes and, and, you know, put these organized crime groups together. And so he offered to provide information, but it, it was in a very unique way in the sense that Flavio Flavio is a very personal guy, like he's very social, he gets to, gets to know everyone. And so he had built this social network in Las Vegas among Romanians. And there were a lot of Romanians who had information about this, or, this credit card fraud scheme, but were afraid to bring that information to law enforcement for fear that they would be harmed by the, the mob, they would, or their family members in Romania would be harmed by organized crime figures there. And so Flavio acted as a kind of conduit where he would get that information and then deliver it to um, Mark Pinto and the FBI. And, and the information proved quite credible, which, and it was substantiated by um, FBI documents that we were able to obtain. And what was happening, and what, what Flavio helped expose, was that the Romanians and the Armenians were working together na nationwide, um, but, but primarily in Las Vegas. And what they would do was be, would be the Romanian groups in Las Vegas would um, work with Armenian groups in other, in other cities, Seattle, Miami, and they had a racket where they would largely go into gyms and they would steal credit card information from wallets and gym lockers. And then they would, they would curry that information over to the Romanians in, in Las Vegas who would then, using special equipment, print credit cards and get IDs and fake IDs. And then they would walk into the casinos and, and go to the cages and use those um, manufactured credit cards or stolen credit cards to get cash advances and, you know, they were raking in, you know, tens of thousands of dollars every, every night. And it was a sophisticated operation that was happening nationwide. Um, but even, you know, in Las Vegas, you know, an example of like how hard they, they would work, you know, Mark Pinto documents how or describes how, you know, in, in Las Vegas, there was this fancy gym and the Armenians and the Romanians working together had this whole setup where the gym was one of those where each, each gym locker had its own unique lock. And so when you checked in, you got your, you got your key which was unique to that locker and you put your stuff in and then you walk away with your key. And so uh, one of the members of the crime ring would go in and over the course of months, make copies of each of those keys, you know, just getting one key each time he goes in so that over time they have the full set and then they would have the full set of keys and then they'd rifle through um, wallets and write down information. And what they would also do was like put a very attractive woman on the gym floor who would then look be the lookout. And if they were kind of pulling credit cards from the Las Vegas gym locker and one of the guys whose credit cards they were stolen, stealing was, was coming back too soon, the very attractive woman would then, you know, intercede and stop the person and delay them from getting there. And then they would take that information and, and get cash advances. And, and this was something that was, you know, pulling in, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars over time. And it took the FBI a little over two years to build a case against, um, the organized crime group, uh, but ultimately, um, you know, indicted more than two dozen people, some of whom fled the country, 
um, after the indictments came down and are, are still, you know, fugitives. Um, but as, as part of Flavio's work, but prior to the indictments coming down, the, um, the head Romanian of the organized crime group for, for some reason discovered that Flavio was providing information and another informant that the FBI had was able to document that they put a hit on Flavio for $500 and Flavio then leaves Las Vegas and returns to Europe. And, you know, there's questions about how credible that threat was. You know, Flavio believes it was incredibly um, credible. Mark Pinto, the FBI agent kind of dismisses it as just bluster. Um, but again, it, it, it shows you that prior to calling the CIA and claiming that he had information about an arms deal, you know, Flavio had a history of being a credible informant for the FBI. And in fact, you know, you know, having, you know, his life kind of altered in a drastic way, having to leave the United States because of threats that came about as a result of his cooperation with the government. Yes. There's a, there's a kind of funny moment where Mark is saying these guys are so painstaking and patient and, and kind of studious in the way that they're doing these scams. I mean, they could, they could almost, you know, if they turned that on the, on the, on the regular market, they could probably make millions entrepreneurially i mean it's so it's it's kind of so painstaking this this credit card stuff that they were doing yeah i mean in a way like mark kind of admired their hard work right which is true yeah. that like you know <laughs> and if they like if they would have applied themselves in a, in a in a i think the quote he has is like you know if they would apply themselves in a similar way to like the a real job they would have made tons of money they would be so successful but you know they're working so hard to be criminals and and it is painstaking work you know and and in, in some ways i mean it, it was like what I, I kind of like that aspect of Mark's description of the organized crime ring in Las Vegas, because I think when a lot of people think about crime, they think about criminals as being kind of very, like, uh, you know, quick to, in the, quick to decision and not necessarily making the best decisions and not being organized and looking at kind of fast money crimes. Um, whereas the Eastern European groups in Las Vegas at that time were really focused on uh, sophisticated crimes that took, you know, months and months to build. And, you know, they really had a network going that was that was quite sophisticated and, and, you know, to such a degree that it was a challenge ultimately for the FBI to figure out what was happening. So, so Flavio's kind of, he's, he's run this gauntlet with the organized criminals in Vegas. He's provided kind of very crucial information to the FBI, um, gets asked by his pal back in Bucharest, Hey, you've been sending cars over. Why don't we, why don't we send a few RPGs? <laughs> and, and, uh, he's like, yeah, all right, maybe, um, as I'm sure anyone would. How do, I mean, I, I guess from your perspective, having having actually spoken to this guy at length uh, over the course of what well over a year or two years, um, what's your kind of assessment of him? Because I I mean, listening to the show, my own opinion was kind of shifting and wending with the episodes. It's like, is this guy a gangster? Is he a chancer? Is he is he a patriot? Is he a, an informer? Like, I I couldn't quite. It's hard to pin him down, and and I think I mean obviously that's because he is hard to pin down. But what's your what's your kind of read on him? Yeah, I think I went through all of those thoughts in the years that I've been um, in conversation with him, um, and I have to admit that I can't say with certainty either way at this point. And I know that's kind of a dissatisfying answer. Like, you know, I, I tend to think that it is more likely that Flavio thought he was working for the CIA than any other possible um, situation. I don't think he was officially working for the CIA. Mm. And I also can't rule out entirely that this was a cover story. I tend to think that's less likely. Uh, and the reason I think that is, 
you know, the, the, the story itself, this idea that someone would call up the CIA and, you know, tell them everything about this crime they're going to commit and then commit that crime and then say, like, hey, I didn't do it. I was actually working for the CIA. You should get the calls. I think, like, you know, the, the, the government's allegation that that was all a cover is, is a reasonable assessment when looked at in isolation. You know, I think that's that, you know, that is the most logical explanation for what is happening here. But I think the Flavio is such kind of a unique character in a sense that his history really informs a different way to look at that. So I think, so that's a way of saying, I think when I first thought saw the case and I saw the circumstances, I tended to be sympathetic to the government's assessment of the case because that seemed to be the most logical. But as I became to, as I came to know more and more about Flavio and understand better what he did in Las Vegas for the FBI and understand his history a bit better, I, I became open to the possibility that he this was this was some big cultural misunderstanding and that Flavio really thought he was working for the CIA. And, and the reason I say that is that I think Flavio believed with you know in the United States and the in the idea of the United States in a way that I think most Americans don't. You know, one of the things he would say to me is like, you know, there was the there was a slogan in the United States after 9-11. If you see something, say something, right? Like if you see a bomb on the bus stop, say something, right? And most Americans would like kind of chuckle at that. There was a cynical take on that. We I mean, at the time, we were all making fun of the color-coded threat assessments that TSA put out. Like that was very much an American response to the government uh, anti-terrorism policies. But to Flavio, this is something he took very seriously. If you see something, say something. And so his feeling was that when he went to Las Vegas and he saw organized Romanian organized criminals stealing credit cards, you know, if you see something, say something. So, so he did. So he went to the, went to um, the FBI in Las Vegas. And with, when he gets the call from Andy Georgescu, his friend who ships cars for him from Los Angeles, he immediately calls the CIA seemingly under the same incentive. You know, if you see something, say something. So he calls the CIA and he, and he, and he, you know, describes everything that that happens one of the things that flavio points to in the recordings of the calls and i think it's important to point out and we, we talk about it in one of the episodes is that there, there's a possibility that there was kind of a rough language misunderstanding or cultural difference when Flav flavio has two different calls with the cia the second call with a, a male agent is, is more serious and in that second call the cia agent says something to the effect of you know, if we can verify this information, this is something we would look into. And, you know, he's using kind of the royal we, what he really means, I think any native English speaker would, would interpret as meaning the CIA will look into it. And what Flavio says, with English being his second language, is he said, we'll look into this. And Flavio believes he was being kind of included in that. Mm -hmm. um, whether you find that to be a credible explanation, I think is, is entirely, you know, a personal decision. What, what I would say is that, you know, I asked this very question to Mark Pinto, the FBI agent who was his handler, thinking that, like, if anyone could have a bead on whether, you know, this was a cover story or whether Flavio really thought he was working for the CIA, it would be Mark. And, and what Mark says is that he doesn't think Flavio was really putting together an arms deal. He really thinks Flavio's story is the correct one, that he thought he was helping the CIA but he also blames Flavio in the sense that he says Flavio really should have known better, right? Like Flavio had yeah. worked for the FBI. He really should have known that if you're going to do this, you need something in writing from the CIA saying this is what's happening. And he didn't get that. 
and and that's a fair point because if if we have FBI files about Flavio's cooperation with the FBI, and in those files there is an there is a document that Flavio signed, you know, basically when they opened him as an informant, so there was an official record of him being an informant, and he doesn't have anything like that for the CIA, and Flavio admits that, and so again, I think that that issue alone kind of helps raise the question again, like was he did he really think he was working for the CIA or did he know better and knew that this created a kind of ambiguity that he could then use to claim his innocence? Yeah, that that, um, that linguistic moment actually was one of the most fascinating parts uh, pops up around the middle of the series, I think. It's it's like one of the few moments where I I think following the story along, I, I thought, oh, wait, maybe that is an interesting legal point. That was one of the few things I thought, oh, maybe that is going to hold up in the courtroom because... I mean, a lot of the story are like, oh, buddy, you're you're pretty screwed here. Um, I mean, how does it tie into... Because you, your previous series, of course, dealt with kind of different agencies um, getting very stuck into the um, BLM movement as well. Um, different, very different contexts, different stories, different characters, but but sort of similar themes running throughout. Um what, how do you think the two stories kind of interact with each other or kind of complement each other? What are the themes running through them, do you think? Yeah, so this is the second season of Alpha Boys. And the first season, as, as you mentioned, was about the FBI's infiltration of the racial justice movement in Denver. And in that particular case, the FBI used a, a violent felon named Mickey Windecker as an informant. And he, over time, became a leader of the Black Lives Matter movement in Denver and was encouraging violence. You know, he, we can attribute a fair amount of the, the violence and unrest to his incitement and encouragement, but then also was, was individually trying to entrap black activists in crimes, including this over the top plot to assassinate the state's attorney general, which went, went nowhere. Um, and, and that story like Flavio's story really gets at the central theme that we're, we try to explore in each season of Alphabet boys, which is, you know, to what degree the government's, and intelligence agencies' use of sting operations to either, you know, get people involved in crimes that can be prosecuted or to gather intelligence in some way is creating the very criminals mm. that they are that they are searching for. And in in the case of um, the first season, it was very clear that the government was not finding black activists willing to commit substantial crimes you know in fact this the it was it, the fbi had considered it a domestic terrorism investigation so they were looking for people to commit very you know deadly serious crimes and they couldn't find anyone and so the informant is then encouraging people to do it and ultimately failing to do it um and then in in, Fla- in flavio's case you know what the dea is doing in these sting operations is you know essentially the same thing right they are presenting the opportunity for someone to commit crime to help deliver weapons to the FARC that might not otherwise happen were it not for the DEA presenting the opportunity. And, and Flavio's story kind of is, it takes it up. It is a, it creates another layer to this, which is that what's interesting about Flavio's case is that the DEA ends up investigating Flavio who had previously worked for the FBI as a source and who had called the CIA and reported the entire crime before he commits it. And so the DEA sting not only is potentially creating the very kind of narco terrorist the agency is looking for, but also ends up wrapping up two other agencies, the DEA, the FBI and the CIA, in the same case. And it just creates this general kind of sense of confusion among the agencies where, 
you know, you have this kind of farcical, uh, potent, this potentially farcical situation where basically the DEA is investigating uh, a source of another agency. And, you know, the, the, the art that we have for the second season tries to kind of distill this, which is a, it's a play on that, the Superman meme where the, where the three uh, Superman yeah. are, or, or Spider-Man, I'm sorry, the Spider-Man meme where the, the three Spider-Man are, are pointing at each other. And instead we swapped out like G-Man looking guys doing it. Cause that's very much what this case ultimately becomes where, you know, the FBI says it's the DA, DEA's fault. The CIA says they had nothing to do with it. It was the DEA and the FBI. And, and to me, that's really fascinating. The other thing I think is that, that Flavio would argue, and, and one of the reasons that Flavio had spent so much time talking to me um, is that you know, a lot of my work has focused on the use of sting operations in various contexts, including for terrorism. And a, and a very simple and, and often used you know, formula for this is that they will, you know, in the post 9-11 era, the FBI had found um, you know, an impressionable, impressionable young Muslim man who wanted to commit violence or said he did, and they would provide him with a bomb. And then he would go and plant it somewhere and dial a phone that he expects to detonate it. And when it doesn't detonate, he's arrested and charged with, you know, conspiracy to use a weapon of mass destruction. And, and Flavio's argument is like, look, my case is like those, right? It started just like those cases. But mine is different because I didn't, as, as Flavio says, I didn't bite the bait. I, I, was, I called up the CIA and said, hey, they're doing this. You want to know more? And, and to me, that was kind of this fascinating question about, you know, not only does it kind of allow you to kind of look at the efficacy and um, ethics of doing these kinds of sting operations, but then it also kind of in Flavio's case kind of helps point out maybe the potential absurdity of it, which is that, you know, not only are these agencies potentially creating crimes, but they are perhaps even investigating each other at times unwittingly um, in that, in that sense. Yeah. Um, in case, in case anyone doesn't realize already, I thought this show was awesome. It's so, it's such a fascinating topic to, to dig into. Um, we'll, we'll stick up links to the show, uh, with this, uh, episode as well. Um, what were you kind of working on at the moment, Trevor? You got any uh, series three in the hopper or are you working on any other, other kind of stuff? Yeah. So I hope, I hope we, we, you know, we were guaranteed a first two seasons, uh, with the second season is out now. Our hope is that we'll be renewed for seasons three and four. So I have some ideas about what I'd like to pursue and I'm working on kind of the early research of that. Our hope is that we can, um, you know, one of the agencies that we want, really want to look at next is the the uh, ATF, alcohol, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms and explosives, which is you know an agency that often doesn't get the level of attention that you know the FBI or the DEA or even the CIA does, but is really an agency that's involved in a lot of kind of similar behavior in gun running conspiracies and, and others. And so, um, so our hope that is that either for season three or four, um, we'll be able to kind of look at a similar ATF case. But our goal in all of these cases, I, I should mention as well, is obviously that. We, what we want to try to put on display and put forward for the listener is that, you know, a requirement for any season or any case that we'll explore is getting access to the undercover recordings. And so, you know, as in seasons one and two, you know, a lot of the story is told through the undercover recording. So you hear the agent speaking to the targets, in this case, Flavio, you know, talking about what happens. And then we complement that with interviews with people involved to kind of give the full picture uh, of what's of what's happened. And so, you know, I, I think what's unique about the series and, and the reason I hope it will continue in the future seasons is that we are able to kind of bring listeners into this very kind of, you know, this world that few people are able, usually able to access, which is kind of the, the behind the scenes view of, uh, of an undercover investigation. 
Yes, fascinating stuff. Um, well, thanks ever so much for joining us, Trevor. Um, hopefully, we can catch up some more about season three then when that when that appears. Um, Great. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. Cheers. Take care. Thanks.